0: Good morning, everyone. Good morning. We have made it almost to the end of this letter uh, from the Apostle Paul to the believers in the region of Galatia. But as we do, uh, as we come to the end, Paul is not yet quite finished. And so at this point, it's like he grabs the quill from the amanuensis. The amanuensis was the person to whom letters in ancient times were usually dictated and they would write them down and uh, in the case of many of Paul's letters you will see that uh, at the end of his letters he chooses to write something in his own hand perhaps as a way of just personalising the letters mostly it's just a signing off and a final greeting but in this particular letter there is plenty more that he wants to say. He begins, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Now it may well have been that the Apostle Paul just happened to have characteristically large handwriting or it may well have been that his poor eyesight or perhaps some problem with his hands, maybe from years of... Very careful work sewing and tent making required um, his handwriting to be quite large. Either way, that large handwriting would have been characteristic and the receivers would have known that this was a letter that was genuinely from Paul and not said to be from Paul but actually from one of these false teachers who often made claims in perhaps in his name. Those are all possibilities but it's perhaps most likely that what we have here is the ancient equivalent of bold and caps lock and underline. Paul wants to underscore the point here and so he writes in these very large letters. Now at this point I feel like I need to provide a little bit of a warning today because there's a word that's popped up throughout this series and as we've worked our way through it some of you but particularly some of the younger ones have found this word to be kind of awkward, an awkward thing to be mentioning and labouring again and again in a church service. Maybe some of you can guess what that word is, the word is circumcision. And I agree in some respects, circumcision is a bit of a non-issue today for us in churches. So why are we labouring on and on about circumcision for weeks on end? Nobody that I'm aware of is pressurising anybody to be circumcised to prove their salvation or as a requirement for their salvation. But as we finish up today, I wanna underscore that it is not circumcision per se that the apostle had a problem with. Remember that he himself had one of his co-workers, Timothy, circumcised. And he did this because of prejudice that they might have experienced amongst the Jews as they were going about their ministry. So, it wasn't circumcision per se that Paul had an issue with. What he had an issue with was the legal requirement or the legalism that underlay the Judaizers' insistence upon circumcision as part of their salvation. So as we keep moving through here today, we need to keep those things in mind, but we need to keep in mind also that whilst circumcision might not be the issue for us here and now today, there are plenty of other things that have a similar legalistic undertone that we do see in churches within our own culture today. Now I know of people who have been told that in order to be saved, you must first be baptised. I know of many people who have been told that if you are saved, then you will speak in tongues. Or that all Christians will give a 10% tithe. Or that Christians can't drink alcohol. Now, these are just a few examples of many things that fall into that category of legalism that Paul riled against. So, to clarify, is baptism necessary for salvation? Is it a requirement of our salvation? No, it is not. Do you have to be baptised to be a believer? No, you don't. But is it important? Yes, it is. Do I think all believers should be baptised? Yes, I do. But not because it's necessary for their salvation. Baptism is an outward expression of something that's happened inwardly. A person chooses to be baptised because they want to be obedient to a direct command of the Lord we're told to repent and be baptised. People choose to be baptised as an expression of their gratitude to God, or as a means of identifying with Jesus in his death and his resurrection. In being baptised, we see a symbol of our rising to new life in Christ. And some people choose to be baptised as a sign of their intent to grow on in their relationship with God. None of these things have anything to do with a requirement as part of their salvation. That is a work that is completed at the cross. Their baptism is an outworking of that salvation. What about speaking in tongues? I know many people who have been told that all believers will speak in tongues is that necessary to prove your salvation no it is not the ability to speak in tongues is a gift but it is one of many gifts that is given to believers within the church believers are given all sorts of gifts teaching prophecy wisdom faith mercy helps administration And all of these are to be used by all of the individuals in the church to build up the body of Christ. They are not prerequisites for your salvation. They are part of the outworking of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. What about the 10% tithe? In some circles, extreme pressure is, extracted on, is put, placed on people to extract a 10% tithe. Now, this is a form of legalism that harks back to the Old Testament when it was written in law. And it was there as a requirement to pay for the, the running of the temple and the, the workers within the temple, the priestly families. And of course, we still have similar sorts of needs today but God has said of us through the prophet Jeremiah that his law would be written on our hearts and in our minds, not on tablets of stone. So when we give, a bit like when we're baptised, it is the outworking of this salvation in us It's the outworking of something that has already happened to us. We give not because we have to, we give because we want to. We give from grateful hearts and we give because our priorities have changed. We have become a kingdom people and so we want to contribute to kingdom work. You know, no one has to tell a parent To be generous towards their own children. When you become a parent, your priorities change and that changes how you use your money. In the same sense, when we become children of God, when we become citizens of a different kingdom, our priorities change. It is the outworking again of our salvation. Now my final example here, and I've just picked from Four of potentially many, many examples of modern day legalism in Christian circles is this um, ban on alcohol that some Christians believe needs to be the case. Now, avoiding alcohol is something that many Christians do for very legitimate reasons of conscience. Some of them look around society, they see all of the problems caused in society by alcohol, And so they decide to abstain because they don't want to be part of supporting that. That's a very valid reason. Some of them know someone who perhaps personally have been affected. Maybe um, there's been a death in a family due to a drunk drink driving accident. Or they know someone who's struggling with an addiction. And so out of respect for those people, they themselves decide to abstain. Another very valid conscious reason. Some people are not confident themselves that they can avoid drinking to excess and potentially losing control of themselves and allowing those desires of the flesh that the Apostle Paul spoke about earlier in his letter to take hold of them. So they abstain for that reason. And others are just aware that for them, that is a particular issue in their own lives that has a hold on them. And so they abstain for that reason. Now these are all very valid, very noble conscience decisions. And they may well arise in an individual as the outworking of salvation in their lives as a change that comes from their salvation but they have nothing to do with their salvation itself. Now I've given you just... One example in this area, there are a whole lot of things that Christians may choose um, to be working on in their lives. Gambling, I know that's a a big issue that many people um, will abstain from anything that supports the gambling industry because of what they see. But none of these things are actually requirements for salvation. Christians are not required to abstain from these certain things in order to be saved because To look at it that way is to bring in a works kind of culture, that we're working for our own salvation. And, of course, that is what Paul has laboured on all the way through this letter. So someone who is living by the Spirit doesn't need the law to tell them what it is that they must deal with in their life. The Holy Spirit within them imparts this character of God into their hearts, and that's how transformation happens in their lives. We come as we are, warts and all, and accept the free and gracious gift of salvation and allow the Holy Spirit to begin that work of transformation. So, when we read this book, And especially this latter part of of this particular letter, as this word circumcision comes up again and again and again, we need to try and think of some of these things that might apply in the same sense in our current culture today. So with his large letters written in his own hand, the apostle warns them that those who are trying to compel these believers in Galatia to be circumcised only do so because they want to make a good showing in the flesh. They have completely the wrong motivation. They want these Galatian Christians to be circumcised because their allegiance or their submission in this way would be something of a badge of honour for these legalists. They weren't doing it as Paul was doing or would do with Timothy, driven by the advancement of the gospel as the primary motivation. They weren't even doing it because they actually thought it was or genuinely believed it was in the best interests of these Christians. Paul's exposing their motives here. They were doing it out of selfish motives because they wanted themselves to look good. Now, I'm sure that All of us who are part of this church would love for our baptistry to be overrun with candidates. We would all love for offerings to always be strong. We would love for the gifts of the Spirit to be evident among us. We want our ministries to be effective and to be making a big difference in the lives of others, but particularly in the lives of those who are in need. And there's nothing wrong with desiring those things. They are all good things, provided our motivation is right. When these things become a sign for us of outward success, the standard by which we measure success in earthly terms, that's when we risk having them become for us like some kind of grotesque trophy room when we're trying to make a good showing in the flesh. The legalists pretended that they were motivated out of concern for these new believers in Galatia, but what was really driving them was making a good outward impression and avoiding their own persecution for the cross of Christ. So this is a very deliberate act on their part to downplay the role of the cross of Christ in salvation to avoid their own persecution and in doing that they were actually standing in support of false doctrine. In 1996 two football teams who were great rivals met in the last game of the season. They were both teams from the same state, the state of Oklahoma in America. One of them OSU, the Oklahoma State University Cowboys, the other OU, the Oklahoma University Sooners. Now it wasn't the grand final or anything, but what was at stake were bragging rights within that state. And with six seconds to go in the game, the Cowboys were trailing the Sooners by just six points. And so their coach called a timeout. And he called his quarterback, uh, a guy by the name of Randy Johnson, to the sidelines. And anyone who knows anything about the game of American football will know that it's the quarterback who makes most of the calls uh, for the rest of the team about which plays are going to be used in the game. And so he instructed his quarterback and he told him that for this final play of the game he was going to bring all of the seniors on because all of these seniors would be, it would be their last game of the season. And so he wanted them all to be part of it. And then he instructed his quarterback that he could make whatever play he wanted for this last play of the season. And so Randy Johnson gathered his team in a huddle around him and he looked from one to the next to the next of all of these players. And he looked across at a guy called Harry who wore big number eight on his chest and he could see tears in Harry's eyes because this was his last game and they were losing. And then he looked across to another one guy by the name of Ralph. He wore a big number seven on his chest and he too had tears in his eyes at the thought of this being his last game and them losing in this way. And so he looked from one to the other and then he called the 13th play. Now the 13th play was a play that they'd never used before. They'd never run it in a game before for good reason. Because they'd never been able to successfully pull it off in training. So the huddle broke, they went on to the field and they ran the 13th play to perfection. Scored a touchdown, followed up with the, the kick, got the, the extra point for the kick and won the game, the final game of the season. And amidst all of the celebrations, the coach gestured to his quarterback. And he said to him, Randy, why on earth did you choose at this moment to call the 13th play? And Randy said, well, I looked at Big Harry with the big number eight, and I looked at Big Ralph with the big number seven. And so I added the numbers together and I called 13. And the coach said, But Randy, eight and seven don't equal 13. And so Randy thought about it for a minute and he looked up with a bit of a smirk on his face and he said, You're right, coach. And if I'd been as smart as you are, we wouldn't have won that game. <laughs> and you know, sometimes we human beings, we like to think that we are so smart. We like the numbers to add up. We like to be able to work things out logically, and so often we apply those same matters to matters of faith. And can I tell you, there is nothing logical or reasonable about the cross. The cross defies all human reasoning. Its numbers don't add up in any human sense. People look at the cross and it speaks to them of a whole range of things. First of all, it tells us that we are all sinful. And many people find that thought highly offensive. Second of all, it tells us that all of us are incapable of doing anything about our own sinfulness. And people find that very offensive because we like to believe that we can work things out on our own. People look at the cross and it tells us that we're all equally incapable of doing anything to earn our own salvation, whether we are the most law-abiding citizen, the most loving, the most compassionate person on earth, or we're the most evil person on earth. All of us are equally incapable of earning our own salvation. And people find that offensive. Because we like to believe that if you do good works you get a better result. People look at the cross and it tells them that there is only one way to be saved. It reminds them of those words of Jesus I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me except comes to the Father except through me. It tells them that there is no other way. It tells them that there is only one way truth. And people find that offensive because we like to believe that there can be many different forms of truth for different people. When the religious leaders and the jeering crowds of Jesus' day looked at the cross, the numbers for them did not add up. How could any great ruler, mighty saviour or powerful king come to such an ignominious ending? Surely the cross was all the evidence that they needed, that this was not the Messiah that they had been waiting for. But two men went ahead and called the play anyway, so to speak. The first was one of the criminals who was hung either side of Jesus. Remember me when you come into your kingdom, he said. And the other was a Roman centurion, a soldier who had stood before the cross, seen Jesus there, heard him cry, and saw how he died. Surely this was the Son of God, he had exclaimed. The Apostle Paul goes on, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, says the Apostle Paul. Now just think for a minute of the person speaking those words in spite of all of his great evangelistic effort, in spite of the many churches he'd planted, the people he'd discipled, the leaders he'd raised up and mentored, the suffering that he'd endured, the volumes that he'd written, The people that he'd helped, the apostle knew that none of it had absolutely anything to do with his standing before God. He could take credit for no part in his own salvation, and neither can we. It is solely the work of Christ on the cross. And with that work completed in us, the world is dead to us, and we are dead to it. The things of the world hold, no, hold nothing over us because our righteousness before God and our salvation are the work of Jesus and only Jesus on the cross. So we have no reason to boast about anything else because everything else is just not relevant. Circumcision was not relevant to anyone's standing before God in Christ and likewise any of my strivings, any of my successes, any of my morality, my generosity, my keeping of religious traditions and rights, my moral standing, none of these things have any hold over me. None of them are worth boasting about because all of them are irrelevant to my salvation. They may well be the outworking of it, but they are irrelevant to my salvation and they are to yours too. All that matters, says the apostle, the most important thing that he felt the need to spell out in these large letters of his own hand, all that matters is a new creation. To find one's identity in the saving work of Christ at the cross. Such people are truly free. They are in the world but not of the world. And they will know the peace and mercy of God, says Paul, because they are the true Israel of God, the descendants of Abraham by faith. Finally, says Paul, now remember Paul actually bore on his own body the mark that these Judaizers were trying to enforce all of the believers to have. Finally, he says, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Those were the marks that were important. Like an ancient slave who was branded with the marks of his master, the scars that the Apostle Paul bore on his body were a result of his suffering for Christ. And they showed where his true allegiance now lay. He concludes this letter as he began with one word, grace. Grace is the theme, really, for this whole letter. It is his greatest desire that all believers would embrace and understand the undeserved favour of God made available to all of us through the saving work of Christ on the cross. Not to complicate it by adding to it or by putting some rules around it, but to simply walk in it by faith, boasting only in the cross. Will you do that today? Let's pray together. Father, forgive us. Forgive us when the most important thing may not have been to us the most important thing. Forgive us when sometimes, like the Judaizers, we've tried to add to the saving work of Christ. We've tried to add our own good deeds. We've boasted in our own efforts. And in doing so, all we do is steal your glory. Forgive us when we may have been ashamed of the cross or fearful of the reaction of family and friends, if we have proclaimed it. May each one of us here today or who may be listening at some later time to a recording, may each of us be fully convinced of the all-sufficient work of Christ on the cross.